It's my purpose to use my privilege to be a voice and a vehicle for other people. That's it. End of. It has nothing to do with me. And so if I'm serving that, then I'm on my path. So I'm happy to help anyone who can advance it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Blissfully Aware, a podcast about rooting into purpose and exploring your creative process. Amiwana Friedman. This is a story about the birth of an artist. It's a story about bucking the art establishment in favor of listening to your inner voice. Status quo says only certain types of media creators are truly artists. Status quo here, at least in the United States, feeds on the idea that resources are scarce. Swimming in the soup, creatives compete for the attention and dollar of gatekeepers. But what happens if we wake up and see alternatives? What happens when we build our systems and technical repertoire from a place of plenty? When it comes to something as sacred and personal as art and creativity, how does one break from the establishment to nurture it fully? Leslie Askew did just that. She is doing just that every day. It's a lifelong practice. This episode is about her unique creative process. It's a window into her philosophy and how her creative methods have taken her from CNN to independent documentary film. Let's dive in. Leslie, what's up? What's up, Iwana? I'm so happy to be here with you. I've known you forever, and I'm so proud of you and this podcast, so I'm really honored to be a part of it. So I'd like to start by saying thank you. What a pleasure. Let's dive right in. You've talked before about how documentary film is healing. How does it heal you? Like all of us, I want to be heard above all else. (laughs) And when you have the situation of a documentary film where you're focusing on another person's experience, their words, their, you know, their life, you're able to take a step back from your own self to listen to someone else. And my interest in social justice always comes out of my experience as an African-American living in America in a white dominated society, historically racist, not feeling valued, not feeling heard. And that is so deeply stifling that it's something that I've always fought against. And so documentary films allows that space that is necessary to allow two human beings to connect with one another because the other one has to listen and they've already accepted to listen to that other person's story. And so through that, I feel like it only can be transformative. One of our basic needs is just to be heard and to be listened to and for you to tell who you are. So as a producer, like listening in an interview, being allowed into someone's space and their home and their lives and their, it's such a tremendous privilege. Like I would get chills every time I've ever done it. You're participating in this kind of magic between two people. And that's my job is to sort of translate that. That's what resonates with me. To really grasp how Leslie creates space for healing through her work, we need to learn more about her history, step in her shoes a little bit deeper. 
why she's attracted to documentary work as central to her whole journey. There's a key in there that unlocks the way she sees her role in the world and how she tells stories, from big picture down to technique. I knew I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker at 16. I saw the documentary series Eyes on the Prize, which is about the civil rights movement, and it's told over at an episodic historical series. And by the end of it, I was so moved, but mostly about how storytelling, how sharing of your story can really build empathy with someone else. That's incredible to me. And it's like, if I could do that, then that is my purpose, like full stop. I knew because growing up, my mom, I always had a very strong sense of social justice, civil rights. We lived in Atlanta. So like we're there, it's like the civil rights movement is so omnipresent. And I'd already thought I wanted to do peace and conflict resolution. I wanted to go to Israel and fix the Israeli-Palestinian problem. I wanted to be a mediator. So I was pretty convinced that it was just down to me to sort of fix the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. <laughs> I love it. I even went to Israel. I lived there for two months, like learned all about it. it was like, this is what I'm definitely going to do with my life. And then I found documentary film and it's a way of healing each other by understanding someone else's story and their experience. And I was like, this is the perfect vehicle for me to do what I think I'm here for. Yeah, that's how I got to it. And then I decided to go into anthropology instead of going into film school. That was like a conscientious choice because I wanted to study culture and I wanted to study people, how we construct our identities. And I thought that was a very strong basis to start off from as a filmmaker. Luckily, after studying I lived in New York with you, and you helped me get an internship at Magnum, which further sort of solidified this internal knowingness, you know, and exposed me to documentary photography because it has that same power as filmmaking. And then I just started working in television, worked my way up the ladder up until today. I've done every job. I've worked in every medium except for reality television. I've made several documentaries over the years. I've learned through the process of being a television producer. So when it comes to me doing my own films, I've kind of used that information and transferred it over. So much of your work is about sharing other people's stories, be it Aboriginal people from Australia or the work that you did for CNN Heroes. How do you train your ear to listen? You shut everything else out, right? If you are able to get to the point where you're sitting down and ex having that exchange with someone, I think if you planned enough, you can let go. Producing is all about preparation, forethought, seeing ahead, getting things together. And by the time you sit face to face with another person, you've prepared so much that you can like release into the experience and really be mindful and present because you're sharing this space and you can feel their energy and their heat and like I try to just let go and then when you let go I can really follow them word by word and pick up on what they're saying and follow it all the way through and then you learn to also share in that empathy. Like it reminds me of when I was interviewing Tyler Perry. 
I was so nervous because of who he is and it's a very intimidating experience going to his lot. I went three and a half hours early to set everything up. So by the time he was there, I was so like adrenaline rushed, but I was knowing having done this, just focus, just be in this moment. We're two humans having a conversation. And then because I think I was able to just connect on my breath and then listening to him, when he starts to cry, it's a very vulnerable moment for, you know, for him, for me. But it's because I have this deep sense of respect. I just would like release and go into it, you know, and not try to stop it, which was terrifying in the moment because you don't want to feel like you're harming anyone, you know, obviously when you're listening. Yeah, I think I've learned to breathe and just taking every word they have in to say. I love that. Stepping into the space and being there with somebody as their equal, regardless of where you guys are in your lives and what your careers look like. And I also love what you said about building the scaffolding beforehand and having like an understanding of where this is going without being too prescriptive. Is this a good time to dig into that a little bit and describe what that scaffolding might look like? Yeah, absolutely. And also just to pick up on your point about truly being that interviewee's equal and humbling yourself because they're letting you in. Like, it's such a privilege for you. Doesn't matter who it is, Tyler Perry, whatever, anybody on the street who's allowing you to interview them because they're so vulnerable. You have to walk into that energy with humility. At least I do because I'm in awe of anyone who sits in front of me. And when I put a camera on in front of them and they're giving you that trust, I am literally like bowing at their feet. I got really good advice when I first started was like, in order to allow magic to happen, you need to prepare for it, right? Magic isn't um, like a lightning bolt, you know, you're not walking around with the wand, you need to be prepared. So it's really thinking through all of the possible scenarios that could happen in terms of how your interviewees is going to arrive, how they're being treated, what are they going to drink, like from the very like minute details to knowing their story, to the minute details, writing out your questions. And I write out my questions, but then I just bold the ideas, the emotionally charged ideas that I want to cover. So like birth or, you know, your impact, these kinds of big concepts that I want to capture. And I have those bolded. I don't read questions like, so John, when you were in high school in 1969, you know, I keep it really big picture, even though I know exactly where we're going. And because of that, I always try to communicate that I know who my interviewee is, either prior or head, because that gives people confidence. It's like you've cared enough to, to do your research, like you cared enough to understand who I am before we've started this process helps build that respect between you. Even if you've met them just two minutes before, I always try to say something to them like, oh, I really enjoyed when you said something about this or, you know, when we were on the phone before, like I keep thinking about, you know, your take on this and I find that really interesting. And they're like, oh, okay. Like you already established that kind of rapport and relationship and you're telling them, I know who you are and I hear you. So when we turn that camera on, that relationship is still going to continue. We're not starting from scratch. We are connected. 
and I'm going to maintain and respect that connection. So once I've done all of that groundwork, by the time you're there, you can just release and listen to them. Let the conversation go where it's going to go, knowing where you, the big ideas that you want to get out of it. So when they are vulnerable, you've created a safe space because you've thought about them. You've cared for them, <laughs> you know, like you've created this universe for them and this and for this moment to happen where they're safe and they're thought of. So that's how I try to do it, because I don't want to feel like I'm taking more than I'm giving ever. I learned studying anthropology that your presence is impacting the situation. You can't remove yourself from it. You are there. You have to acknowledge it and you have to be respectful. That line of respect needs to always be there in place. And if you're not, then there will be problems. You were taking advantage of that other person. So their well-being is the of absolute paramount and your own well-being. And this is how I take care of myself through the process, as well as the other person that I'm interviewing, whose story I'm telling. Can you give us some examples where you've seen in the moment that the person might not be comfortable sharing where the conversation is going and how you navigated that? Oh, yeah, it definitely has happened. I think my favorite moment, because I wasn't expecting it, I was um, working on CNN Heroes and they sent me to Kentucky to interview a doctor who in his spare time organizes free surgery for people who don't have insurance. It's an incredible man. And I interviewed one of his patients who had lost half his nose through skin cancer. And CNN Heroes was rebuilding his nose. So I went there to film the whole process. So the patient who I was interviewing, when I met him at the front door, had had his nose missing. And he'd agreed to be on global television and was feeling incredibly vulnerable and insecure about this completely understandable. So I had to, in a very short amount of time, build that kind of confidence and trust. And he didn't want to be filmed. He wanted to show me, you know, his garage and he wanted to give me a tour of this, you know, and it's so understandable. And so I was sitting with him and we're going through some photos and he picked up this photo and was like, so this is what it looked like when I had the cancer and I, you know, the cameraman had been rolling as he's showing us the photos. And that's how the interview started was he just organically just started talking and showing me the photos of what the cancer had done to his face. And he's shaking, just remembering, as he said, what he'd done to himself. And he, he was a construction worker. He's a big manly man, you know, and, um, that experience exactly that taught me that you have to be guided by people, but also that you need to allow that space for your subject. Whatever is required, you have to give them that space to get to where they need to go. You can plan and then be guided by them. But it's funny, I'm always like, plan, plan, plan. But the last documentary I made, I tried to do the opposite of that. I hadn't made a documentary in a while, and so the guy I met and who I decided to do a film on, he kind of challenged me to make a film on him. Like, yeah, you should make a documentary about me. And people always say that when you say that you're in television. And I usually <laughs> like, yeah, you're not that interesting. So I'm not, but he's like, you should make a documentary about me. And I was like, you know what? I am. And he's like, uh-huh. I was like, yeah, tomorrow I'm coming and I'm going to film you. And I went home. I did some research just to see who this guy was. And then I just rocked up and, 
filmed it and didn't have a plan. And then I came back and I edited it up and still no plan. That's also what I've learned is like, if I'm in a rut creatively, experimenting is the best thing in the world. It's so rewarding if I shape things that I'm a bit afraid to do. It's like, okay, Leslie, we're just gonna do an experiment, you know? I'm gonna go to this guy tomorrow, I'm gonna film him, it's just an experiment, there's no pressure, see what happens. That was deeply satisfying because then I did actually make something that I'm really proud of as a result. And I feel like you kind of sense it when you watch the film. Two things come to mind as I'm listening to you. One is all the years that you've cultivated planning and thinking of all the angles and all the variables are kind of allowing you to shoot from the hip a little bit once in a while because it's in your muscle memory. Yes, exactly. It's the 10,000 hours. Totally. And then the other thing that came to mind is uh, keeping the ball moving. Sometimes the goal is just to do something and not be so attached to what the outcome is because the act of doing it, just staying in motion, can sometimes get you ramped up and give you shape and give you a purpose later. Hell yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I had heard that so many times myself, and I was like, that's some bullshit. But it's <laughs> true. It is so true. And it's like, I've learned to get out of my own way and like not overthink it. Because I was like, I don't know if I can really do this, even though I've been working in this so long. Like, girl, please just do it and then you work it out later. Like, don't even think about it. Yes, I completely, I completely agree. It's really important for creative people to not, which is what something is also very cliche. It's like, don't take yourself too seriously. Um, and you shouldn't. One of my heroes is Ah Weiwei. And this is who really solidified it for me and pushed me to experiment. His work currently focuses on the refugee crisis. He is a refugee as well and is a massive human rights activist. All of my heroes, I think, strongly live in that space that art is activism. And um, he beautifully exemplifies this. But he also really, even though he must be at least in his 50s, 60s, he really embraces social media. He weaponizes it for his activism and especially against the Chinese government, like by mobilizing people. He really shares everything that's happening to him all the time. And this is his art. I went to an exhibition of his and his Instagram posts are part of the work, right? Because he... Everything that he's doing is art. Everything that he's producing it has the purpose. And so for me, looking at that in my own self, I'm like, an Instagram post doesn't have to be polished. He will literally just film the top of his head or like a sideways coffee cup or whatever. But when you start putting all of these pieces together, that's when it does begin to take shape. But it doesn't need to be a complete picture in one. You need to take each of these little steps that don't seem perfect, you know, all are leading you up into this. I knew this theoretically in life, but like I started applying it to my art. It really, really pays off. If you have an idea, just jump off deep into it and go. Oh, sorry. That's not allowed. Um, no, it's fucking allowed. It's OK. <laughs> just go for it. Um, I promise you, you won't be disappointed and no one, no one is judging you.
this is a really good segue in talking about the situation where like a lot of media creators who are specialized in still photography, everybody in that space is now in a place where they're asked to produce more moving image. What are your thoughts on that? And how would you go about stepping into that space and adding to your repertoire? 10 years ago, when I think it strongly started, because media companies were just basically trying to consolidate and make things as cheap as possible. They already have a photographer out there, might as well become a videographer as well. With the friends that I had who was moving into that space, he understood and appreciated that storytelling is different from one medium to the next and like, how is it done? That is largely not sort of taken into account when these people are being pushed into this other sort of median. And he really took the time to figure out and we like worked together to figure out how to take what he was already doing and start building a story out of that, that he could capture in a visual film way. What he and I stepped through was figuring out what you want to say, having a plan in place and a script, working out what a script is of the story that you're going to tell. And then going from there will give you a good basis to work from. Yeah, when you say script, a lot of people might have visions of something so detailed with dialogue and like set scene, which can feel so daunting. Are there nuances that we can think about within the term script? Absolutely. Just taking even further a step back, people always ask, what is it that you do? Like you're a producer. What the hell is that? They don't have a firm idea of what it is. So when you're producing or directing something, you'll have a script. A script isn't like a movie script telling the subject what they need to say. It's basically a rough outline of your film. So essentially you've arrived in a place, so you've, you open it with that. Or like, let's say if you're telling somebody's story, you would start with the conflict is always the strongest place to start from usually, especially in like news journalism. You start with the conflict and then you work your way sort of backwards from there. And so you know that, so you start with a question that would leave them there. So why was this the most difficult time in your life? The questions are going to mirror what your overall script will be, but it needs to just be a basic outline, a rough structure of what your story is. This person had this issue, they resolved it in this way, and they're looking towards the future always, especially if it's news. You know, they want that kind of wrapped up in a bow ending. And so that is your script. You writing that down in, in a prose sense or putting it in two columns and writing that out and then ans asking them questions based on these ideas that you already know. You should always, if you can, pre-interview people where you speak to them ahead of time to, again, build that relationship and figure out what kind of questions beyond the sort of obvious ones you're going to answer. And then you write your script based on that. It's a lot more fluid. So even unscripted television is like, they know what they're going. They know what they're going to do. You know, It's all planned out ahead of time. In our pre-call, we were talking about Anthony Bourdain his shows because they do feel very impromptu, very like shooting from the hip. But you had something to say about that. Yeah, I think if you have talent like Anthony Bourdain, who is 100% shooting from the hip and is actually drinking that 
glass of Guinness or whiskey. He's drinking it all. And as a producer, I would be screaming on the inside because you don't know where he's going to go. But I will bet, and I'm happy to be corrected, that before they got there, the producers know exactly what's going to go. The script would have been roughly written out. I wouldn't see why any of that basic structural narrative could not have already been written and plotted out. And even to the point where Anthony's sitting at a table with locals and he's like, yeah, so tell me about the political situation in Botswana, blah, blah, blah. Motherfucker was told to ask that question. If he wasn't told, he knew that that was a big theme that they wanted to get out of it was like, you know, tell me about, you know, gay rights here because that's an issue. That's still scripted. Doesn't need to be verbatimly written out. It's as I was saying with my interview, like having basic structural themes that you want to accomplish in your overall story, having a, a clear direction. I do not believe they rocked up, filmed some stuff, and then went home. No, no, it's not happening because it's um, it's too costly. First, like <laughs> yeah. economically, it's too costly. It's too time consuming to behave that way as a filmmaker or, or television producer. Yeah, so you have to go in with something. But he's a good example of, like, you have a good structure, and I imagine you turn him loose in a moment, and you can see, like, I've watched him numerous times, where he's like, yeah, let's go here, or my friends want to go here. And you can feel then, like, the crew is just following him around as he's deciding to take a pup crawl. That wasn't scripted, you know? So... Because of that, you find magic because they've already planned it around him. He has that ability and that space to be creative and to have the magic happen. But it's definitely happening within a framework, I'm sure. You're echoing something Stephanie Rooker said on this very podcast about voice, which is building the scaffolding around like certain techniques, but then finding the freedom within that is actually a really great way to step into your creativity because the constraints help you dig deeper where the temptation might be to go wider and shallower. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I can imagine that because it's also, I think, where people get overwhelmed and not you know, and lost. And if they have any feelings of like lack of self-worth, it's very easy to drown in them if you don't have that scaffolding to hold on to. It doesn't feel as sort of sexy and exciting, um, (laughs) but it is what's required, I think. Um, It's like in Malcolm Gladwell's fantastic book, Everyone Should Read, because it basically reinforces what um, Stephanie and I have saying is that... You have these people who you believe are outliers, like the Beatles or Bill Gates or, you know, these incredible people. But it's like they have put in what he's quantified as the 10,000 hours into their craft. So it gets them and their skill set to a level where then greatness can happen, where they can, that genius can really evolve and come out. The famous example is the Beatles. They spent four or five years, I think, working in Hamburg at a strip bar playing covers, you know, like R&B music from the United States, you know, from black R&B music. So because they put in all of that time, being totally nobody, working in a grubby place probably, by the time they worked together so much, they had the amazing rapport that, you know, we all love and appreciate. They knew each other so well, they could anticipate each other's timing. They knew the music because they played so much of so many other types of music, they were able to create their own music. You know, so it's like all of these necessary building blocks that seem like a grind, that seem pointless and it seems thankless, 
But then it definitely reaches this apex within you where you don't have to then think about it. And you can just do, and it's like flying. I can say that now at 40 with confidence. When I was 35, I was like, no. It's almost like you need a critical mass. Yes. And I was thinking about this earlier. What's interesting, I think, why didn't I... Obviously, after being a Middle East peacekeeper, I would <laughs> do that to um, a documentary filmmaker. Like, who the fuck are you, dude? And it's because I think my nobody told me not. My mother never said, oh, yeah, like being a documentary filmmaker is not a job. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, she, she never said, like, um, you might want to think about something that's more practical or whatever, whatever. Like, she told me I could be a Middle East peacekeeper. Like, obviously, Black people understand pain. They're outside media. Like, she and I would talk. Every dream that I had was real from the moment I breathed it in her presence. She's a huge doer as well. So she's like, how are we going to get this done? Makes total sense to me that you'd want to do this. Let's figure out how. That's love. This it's fucking courage that I literally aspire to have that much courage of just there are no words. She would look me in the face and be like, no, go to Israel. Let's do this. You know, like, absolutely. You're going to India. I'll see you in a year. And when I would falter, she'd be like, you wanted to do this because you can do this. Yes, you're having this feelings of doubt, which is a part of the process. So keep going and you're going to go through it because I was raised that way. I wish this for a lot of people is like, listen to yourself and listen to your intuition, but listen to your childhood self. Maybe societally, we're taught to not listen to our childhood selves or what we wanted to do. But I think that's basically the only difference between me and, and other people is like, I never stopped listening to my childhood self. Anytime I falter, even at 40 years old, I literally go back to my journals or I just sit there and think like, okay, Leslie, what did you want? Yes. Okay. I can see it. Like when you were 11, you know, writing poetry about something, what were you talking about? I was literally talking about like protesting the Ku Klux Klan and like how I wanted to destroy them, you know, like, all right. Okay. So this is what, like, <laughs> this, is, this is all that matters. And like, just focus on that. And it hasn't served me wrong, never losing sight of who I was at that time, because I knew that's when you have the most clarity. You're like so clear-minded about what matters. And I just really tried to, I've always really tried to hold on to it. Let's talk a little bit about what the interference might be, because you bring up courage, which makes me think of fear. And then when I think of fear, I'm like, you know, that's like a co-passenger, uh, I don't know that I've ever done anything that was worth fucking doing in my life without being scared shitless of doing it. How do you work with fear? What's your relationship with it? Oh, it's it's been obviously an evolving one. I think as of right now, like it still has the ability to subsume me if I'm not quick enough. It manifests anytime I sort of step outside of my comfort zone. I can sort of sense that I'm fearful because I'll get really irrationally angry, right? That's like my trigger for myself <laughs> where, where I'm like, what is wrong with you? And then I'm like, all right, I'm terrified because I don't automatically know how to do something. And then I have to just sort of catch myself. I have tools. Like I try to meditate and do yoga I need to do it as soon as I realize, like, this is actually what's going on with you. Like, take a 10-minute break. Because if I don't, 
I can easily root myself into that fear. And as a lot of people, then you just get stuck in your head. So I realized for me, my triggers, anytime I'm, I lash out, it's obviously that fight or flight, you know? And so it's like just understanding yourself, your emotional self as best as you can. I always say to my partner, like, that's our, one of our major responsibilities to one another is knowing where you're at. You're absolutely right. In the same time, like fear is useful. It is a good benchmark that you're on the right track in a way. I've done lots of different types of things in my career purposefully to push myself further and further out on that limb um, because that's what keeps it interesting after working in the same field for 20 years, right? So like on Friday recently where I was feeling fearful, I was like, oh, but remember, that's why you decided to do this job because you don't know what you're doing and you want to learn. So there's going to be these moments. And this is a really good opportunity for you to put, you know, put your big girl panties on and learn how to, you know, suck it up. So this weekend I've decided, okay, I'm just going to meditate as much as I can, do as much yoga as I can. So I'm stronger so I can deal with the fear. Usually when I'm fearful, when I'm really, really scared, it's because I have this assumption that I need to somehow have all the answers. Mm. To whatever problem is ahead of me, which is so irrational. Like, who the hell has all the answers to anything in life? I love what you're saying because it, it makes me think of what if we came to lack of knowledge from a place of, of course, I don't know. Of course, this is a journey. Of course, this is going to be co-creation. Of course, I can go into a place and tell a story and not know exactly to the minutia how this is going to turn out. And that's okay. Absolutely. It requires courage to come to terms with that fear, right? And to know that, yeah, it is okay that you don't know, but that's what's exciting because it's really a guide marker. That's how I look at it in life of like, oh, I'm about to learn something new. <laughs> like, <laughs> And now, like, are you going to be opening to learning something new, Leslie? Or are you going to be resistant? Which door do you choose? Because like, it's going to be a hard fucking journey if you choose the one where you're going to resist. Just be open. <laughs> How'd you learn that? Someone told me when I was younger, don't be afraid, Leslie, to admit you don't know, right? Because I was the kind of you know, new person like in TV where I'd be like, yep, I know. Yep. I got it. I can do it. You know, like really not confident, just wanting to feel purposeful. And he's like, it's okay that you don't know. You don't need to know. And for me, it was such a massive relief. And he taught me working under him. We're here to ask questions, actually asking questions and not coming from a place of knowing is much more useful and much more interesting. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to ask everyone I know who would know this answer. And I sit at their feet and I'm like, yes, please tell me. Yes, please. Sharing that burden helps hugely. Because also, as I was saying, like, you have to get out of your own way and be kind to yourself. Absolutely. I think we talked a little bit earlier on, or on our call a couple of days ago about inspiration and how you know, it comes and goes, it's unreliable. <laughs> What's your relationship with inspiration? I've noticed over the years that inspiration for me comes when I have space. 
I think I know from my job working as like a researcher that you dig, 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 and then something will come. But as an independent documentary filmmaker, the ideas I've had for films just naturally come to me when I've made space for them. So what that means is I love waiting tables because my brain shuts off to focus on something that's completely outside of my career. And I can focus on getting that pizza from A to B. And I get so many ideas in that empty space. And it's a really big reason why I left New York, because I didn't feel for whatever reason, like I could be who I needed to be there. And I think a lot of it was lack of space. I was having serious anxiety attacks. It's just like a big thing that subsumes you. But when I came to the Amsterdam then and I started working in television here in those in-between times when I was doing something that was so far, 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 far from what I thought I was doing <laughs> with my life and was like, what are you doing? You just left a job at CNN. But I loved it because uh, it gave me space. And in that space, I made stuff and I was inspired. There's something about this country where it's like, not very exciting, but it has everything you need. It's not complicated. Literally, when I leave my house, I can breathe. I literally am so creative here, even though it's so, some would say, very boring or whatever. I love it. Because you know what? I don't need to be shot at. I don't need any of that exciting stuff anymore. And that's why I came here to actually continue working in documentary film, because I'm so creative when I have space. Yep. I love it. So you're waiting tables, you're serving up a delicious pizza, and boom, goddamn, you have a brainwave, an idea. How do you take that and parlay it into something tangible? A good example of this is I went to Stephanie and Ben's wedding. And the place where we stayed was incredible. And I think in like the entryway, there was a magazine. And in the magazine, there was an Aboriginal man and woman on the cover. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And the article really struck me like a bolt of lightning. Like, whoa, it was all about Australian scientists were using traditional Aboriginal land management practices. And it was that mix of traditional and indigenous and how they were finally listening to these people of color. And I was like, this is the right way. Like, yes, this is the kind of story I want tell and I stole the magazine from the place and so maybe a year later I ended up moving to Australia and it's the first thing I did I literally set about my business of making this story happening did some research online I found someone who was doing this in the Northern Territory called her up and said I'm gonna make a documentary on you for free don't worry about it and she was like no 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 we can pay you this would be great so the Nature Conservancy, the makers of the magazine that I picked up, paid me to make a film about exactly what I, what I was inspired by. And I went to, a, lived in the Northern Territory for a week. It was an incredible experience and work with all these women, rangers. So it was having the space of being away in that beautiful, where was that wedding? What stuck? I was inspired. And then I applied my experience of planning and researching. and then you know, the universe conspired and made it all happen. Like, and I got paid for it, which I was willing to do it for free. Um, cause I thought it was an important story to be told and I still do. So you make it sound so easy and I don't buy it. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't know. Like I, 
when I think about what it takes, like the mental anguish that I sometimes feel when I'm trying to make something tangible and get it out of my head is not reflected in what I'm hearing from you. And we're two totally different creatures. And I'm half jealous, half in awe, half I want to like, I don't know. I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. No, but you make it no, sound think, so easy. No, I think I'm giving you the examples of when it worked. Like if you want examples of when this had not worked for me, um, I could list you as long as my arm. Don't do as long as your arm, but it might be beneficial to learn one little example on what you learned from it. Oh, yeah. Okay. When I was working in that kind of pizza place, I had this brilliant idea that I was going to make a documentary about how, because someone had told me about how the idea of apartheid actually began in Australia and then how it was refined basically with the color laws started in Queensland and Western Australia. So I was like, I'm going to make a film about this. Oh my God, nobody knows this. And so again, I sat down to do the research and yeah, it wasn't there. So I couldn't find anything. So then I got stalled, <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, there are definite examples in the Australian history where they had very crazy, archaic, racist laws that restricted the movement and or Aboriginal Indigenous people, for sure. Did it actually say that it was the bedrock of apartheid? No. Uh, Aboriginal elder had told me and I believed her and I could see that it was there. And so then it just sort of stalled. And then I still kept talking about it, though, to Australian historians that I would meet or people like that. And they're like, yeah, it is something, but we're not really sure. So and I was like, OK, well, you can't make a film about that. It's just an interesting idea. It's not enough to sort of hang your hat on. What that situation has taught me is that you can have inspiration, but it doesn't always need to necessarily manifest immediately to make it valid, right? So I had that idea six, seven years ago, and it wasn't until last week that I was researching for some other show where I actually found evidence of it, right? <laughs> so Get out. Yeah. So it takes time. That's another thing about inspiration. Inspiration, people get that confused with instantaneous. That's a great distinction. Oh, my God. Nobody said it was supposed to be instantaneous. Like, if you can be on your own side, be grateful for the inspiration, and then nurture it if you can, and if it doesn't blossom into something... Don't beat yourself up for it. Put it aside. Put it down. Hold on to it. And then later on, it may or may not come back to you. But the fact is, is like, it's a seed for something else. And that is like, I deeply in my bones believe life is about timing. The more you can accept that about life, the less resistance you'll have. So I try to not, if I am inspired, to not feel like it needs to just happen for me right away. I am so grateful for it. And then I'm like, okay, let's see if this has some, some legs. And as I was saying in my first example, that situation snowballed and it went very quickly and it was like, yep, yep, everything's falling into place. Cool, 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 it's gonna happen. And I need to be ready, you know? And this other thing needs time to grow. This is definitely a point I wanna make is that even though you have, it's your inspiration, it may not be your story to tell. You need to be critical, poke that inspiration, really put it to the test. Mm-hmm. Can we look at an example? I feel like it's important to do something on the refugee migrant crisis, and I was going to do something on it, and I went and I 
follow through and I did and I went and met people and but and I was like, yeah, this is not my story to tell. It doesn't mean that I don't need to tell it. It's it doesn't need to come from my voice. This needs to be told by a Syrian filmmaker or someone who is from that community. Like, and that is what I'm going to do in order to support that story being told. And I did everything that I could to do that. Mm. Oh my God. I love that distinction. Yes. It's not mine. Right, right, right. So in a situation like that, would you reach out to a Syrian documentary photographer or videographer or producer and like talk to them about telling that story? A hundred percent. So in that case, I met with someone who's Palestinian filmmaker and I had already had a connection at Al Jazeera who was interested in the story. So I went just to sort of secure the subject and to make sure that it was solid. And he was already, the subject was already working with a Palestinian filmmaker. And it wasn't even because of that, that everybody was equally interested. I just felt after being there, I was like, this is not my story. I was like, but I will give you the contact for the person at Al Jazeera. They're really keen. I'll connect you, do whatever I can. I really hope this works. Like, it's important that this is told. Hell yes. And I think that this is important. Like, if you're into you have integrity and like your purpose is not for self-promotion, but actually for you are in service to the work. Who gives a shit who fucking does it? Understand your place within all of this. Don't think that you're bigger than, well, because I work in like human rights and social justice. It's my purpose to use my privilege to be a voice and a vehicle for other people. That's it. End of. It has nothing to do with me. And so if I'm serving that, then I'm fulfilling my purpose. Then I'm on my path. So I'm happy to help anyone who can advance it. Like Elizabeth Gilbert helped me understand that when inspiration comes to you, it's like a visiting fairy or nymph or something that it visits multiple people, the same level of inspiration. She said she has an examples in her book where she met another writer she never even knew and they were telling each other they had the same idea for the same novel. And she held on to this idea for three years, didn't do anything with it. The woman had the idea. She wrote it in six months, you know, got a Pulitzer Prize for it, whatever. Same, same idea. Two separate sides of the world. She's like, it's not yours. Inspiration is a gift that is visited to you. It's like a message that needs to be told. And so once it's in your hands, you do everything you can to nurture it, take care of it, be, you know, and then if it's right, it's right. If it's not, you let it go and you be happy for someone else. It's not even about ego. It's like, this is just one other thing I want to say, Rona, because I think that it's not, this point is never made and it's kind of, it annoys me. It's like, people are always like, self-awareness is really important and it's important that you feel really confident in yourself and like blah blah you know all of that kind of stuff which it is absolutely but I think it's also useful a lot less taught that you need to practice being happy for other people Mm -hmm. you need to literally meditate on the happiness and well-being of others not your loved ones other people people you do not know because someone else had taught me, like, never compare yourself to others. When I was working at CNN and I was wanting to get ahead and blah, blah, blah. And uh, <laughs> in order for me to not compare myself to others, the way I rationalized it was like, well, I have to be really happy for other people. How do you do that? So if I see something that I deem as success, I literally dig in deep to how good this must feel for them. 
and how exciting it is to witness it and to like be their friend in this moment and to like want the best for them. Like dig into yourself for someone else. Literally just be happy for someone else. But I don't think that's really discussed. You know what I mean? Oh my God, this is so brilliant. Uh, You're making me think of one of the most frequent questions I get is, you know, you want to, you're an art director, you hired photographers, what's the best way to approach somebody like you to sell them into my work? And it took me a while to learn this, but I was like, the best way is to just tell them you love their work. No trying to sell them anything. Just start a conversation like you would with an acquaintance. Absolutely. Like, I am in awe of your work. I don't know how the fuck you did it. Your contribution has changed me in some way. And that's it. For sure. You are one of my master teachers in this, actually, because you naturally live in this space. I don't think you had to teach yourself. (laughs) Like, you naturally are my whole life of knowing you. I've always felt like you're so happy for not only me, but for other people and everything. Like I have truly followed your example in this. And I think it's so valuable, especially in your work and in creative. If you're taking on a creative field and you admire other photographers or videographers and their work, building a community is hugely important. And the best way to do that is, as you say, like reach out to them and say, I love what you're doing. I've done that and it changed my life. Tell me about that. I moved here and the only person I knew was a documentary filmmaker. And I did exactly that. I had met her through CNN. She was making exactly the kind of documentaries that I dreamed of making. And I just said, exactly. I was like, I love you and I love everything that you're doing and you're amazing and I want to be you when I grow up and, I was, <laughs> and then literally I was 32 at the time and she was like oh my god okay cool <laughs> like she was like well if you come to Amsterdam maybe I can give you a job and we can meet up and I was like yes okay I'll be there in like two weeks you know like so <laughs> and then I did like I, I literally I met her that same day I stayed in her house And we've become friends ever since. And I've worked for her. And I still live in awe of her. You're absolutely right. It's like taking your ego out and just showing your respect for someone else. Again, making that space. Could be the same, obviously, with photographers and videographers as it is in television of like... There is a level of competition within that, within these creative spaces of finding that idea or for if like an I was in news or finding that story, you know, over your counterpart, you know, and that doesn't create an environment where, you know, that kind of level of appreciation can naturally happen. You know, do you think that's the same or do you think that's the case? Or no? Oh, I've felt that through my career. I have felt that way, too. I mean, I put myself in this category. I've been envious. I've been, I felt all the feelings about all this stuff. And what has helped me move through it or make peace with it is adopting this mindset of there's plenty, operating from a place of plenty. And the way in which you, Leslie Askew, would tell a story is very different from how I would tell this story, even though we might share the same principles. Mm -hmm. And so letting go of that idea that, 
of scarcity, that there isn't enough to go around and we're all just kind of fighting over the scraps. I've seen it really work as a way of encouraging more collaboration and, you know, more trust that there's always going to be another story to tell. Absolutely. If you're working within like American capitalist system, like I say that specifically, there is a very competitiveness that's driven by economics and it isn't, in my experience, uh, always creative because they'll take creative arts and, you know, monetize them. And so... When I moved here, I moved into like an artist commune. It was 15 artists living in an apartment building. And it was my first time of truly having what you described of that kind of collaborative experience. Like everyone's in different, has a different medium. There's some overlap, but it was a community project. So we had to work together a lot. It was incredible to experience after leaving the U.S. and working at CNN there was no pressure. I was not in competition with anyone. We were all supportive of each other and everything that we're doing. And it taught me so much about the importance of building your artistic community. And here's Leslie coming into her own as an artist. We see her perspective shift as she describes what the tension was that she had lived with and how she came to see her role and her contributions as an artist from a totally new perspective. I feel like the elephant in the room is like my work as a television person isn't perceived to be art, right? I'm not an artist, but like my documentary filmmaking is in the art category of what people traditionally think. That's something I struggled with when I left the U.S. 10 years ago. I moved into an artist community and I was like, but I'm not an artist. And I felt like a fucking fraud. But they were all like, no, no, you are. And I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. Like, <laughs> CNN is not art. And they're like, no, but what you are is a storyteller. And they're telling me. And I was like, okay. And it took me a year. I lived there for three years. So kind of grow into that to unbrainwash myself of this idea that I wasn't an artist because I wasn't uh, doing a traditional work. I am always worked in a creative space. I have always told stories. That is art. I have doing it to the point of when it is art. Like I now, 10 years later, I'm like, hell yes, I'm an artist. And I thought when I lived in the US, if I wanted to be an artist, I needed privilege that I didn't have. I had to work. You know, I didn't have the space, so I need to leave. And um, I think it's taken me this long to kind of reprogram myself and relearn what I need, that I am an artist and what I need to be in that creative space of like creating the right environment, not beating myself up, all of these little like toolbox tricks that I have, you know, it takes time to get there. So it is a privilege, but I think it's definitely one that you can work towards and can afford. It's all in the way that you look at it. And what's your insight on that? It's literally stop listening to what people are telling you. Listen to yourself. If you are creating, you are an artist. And you need to, as when we're taught in Duke Ellington, you need to be in service to that art. 
that is your job. You don't need somebody to tell you, or you don't need anyone to ask you to sit at the table of this thing that they made up that was always there to exclude you. (laughs) Like I definitely needed to just let go of these ideas that I I pedestaled and then I was allowing to dictate who I was. And then it was just the unraveling of that has been a process and a half. Uh, as I'm doing it, it's like, it's really these reoccurring themes of like, stop listening to other people's bullshit. And the people I mean, these governments and systems that want to tell you how to operate because they're creating these structures. There's no better time than the present to stop listening to your government. They're not in it to win it for you. So when it has to do with something as sacred and personal as your art and your creativity, breathe into it. That is yours. That's beautiful. Talking with you and learning how you do things is like the greatest joy in my life. (laughs) So thank you. Uh. (laughs) You're laughing, but it's true. You're, You're helping me fulfill my purpose. Oh, thank you, Anna. Uh, I'm laughing because it fills me absolutely with joy to speak with you. So thank you again. Thank you so much for listening. This episode wraps up our first season. It's been a joy sharing this journey with you. I think talking openly about vulnerability is such an important part of creative development. We lift each other when we go on a limb together. We'll be back with new episodes and a renewed focus in a few months. In the meantime, head over to at Iwana Friedman on Twitter and we can nerd out over the ebbs and flows of being a creative professional. Blissfully Aware is produced by The Daring, where we help you deepen your relationship with your biggest fans through immersive content. Our theme music is by Ben Tyree. Stay safe and sound and talk with you soon.